0: Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. Good words, good thoughts. How's everybody doing? Yeah? Good. How's the energy? in here. Everybody feeling pretty? Yeah, it's great. Good. It's good to see a room kind of full. Pretty full. Uh-oh. That's going to work better. <laughs> Here's a scary verse of scripture. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, we set aside what is in part. Once I was a child, I thought as a child, I talked as a child, I reasoned as a child. But when I became a grown-up, I put away childish things. Have you? I mean, isn't that a frightening passage of Scripture? This is just a natural progression. You just know a little bit, and you understand a little bit, and you realize that you know a little bit, and you understand a little bit, but then you grow up. And when you grow up, you, you embrace adult and mature kinds of things. And I've struggled. I have struggled to understand why this digression is in the middle of First Corinthians 13. So if you, if you understand the flow of what's happening there, then you know that chapter 12 is all about how we're gifted. How you and I are so special. Amen? I mean, how we're how we're talented, and gifted, and we all have special things that make us who we are. (laughs) And then after that long exhaustive list of all the things that make us special, he says, but greatly desire the greater gifts. Now I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak with the tongue of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong, or a clanging cymbal. If I have all knowledge, and can fathom all mysteries, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not rude. Literally translated, it offends no one. Not many of us can say that. It is not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrong. doesn't delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always hopes. It always perseveres. Love never fails. Now we know in part. We prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, then we set aside what was in part. Once I was a child, I thought as a child I talked as a child, I reasoned as a child, but when I became a grown-up, I put away childish things. never really understood how that fit in the flow of thought until a few weeks ago when I was studying Galatians chapter 4 for this series, and one of the commentators referenced that passage as the logic behind the argument in chapter 4 of the book of Galatians. So we're talking a little bit this morning about what it means to acknowledge that attitude matters. And attitude does matter, doesn't it? And so in case you've lost your place and you've kind of forgotten, and by the way, Colton, thanks for being up last week and crushing it. And Don't you love when someone who's a little younger than me? <laughs> that is so disrespectful. <laughs> it's Just so disrespectful. When someone that's a little younger than me brings that passion to the Word of God. Aren't you thankful for that? (laughs) Me too. Yeah. And uh, I love the way Colton prepares and listens and evolves in his way of speaking and developing material. It's rare. So I I hope you are always reminded that it's a big deal. I hope you're always reminded it's a really big deal. And it's rare, and we ought to celebrate it. So, way to go. He is so uncomfortable right now. (laughs) He's like, ugh. Make it stop. But we all need a little attitude adjustment. I mean, if I just said to you, give me a review of the last 48 hours of your life, how many times has a bad attitude creeped in? How many times have you said or done something that you go, ew, that probably wasn't my best moment? And I grew up in a really simple understanding about attitude. My parents could spot a bad attitude a long way away, and they would call it out, and they would use that language You, sir, need an attitude adjustment. And they were very hands on in their approach to attitude adjustment. So much so that just the threat of having your attitude adjusted could adjust your attitude. <laughs> you know, isn't that funny? I mean, I don't know how it works now, but when I was growing up, my dad had a walk. He had a cadence to his walk, and there was the, I'm serious and going to get the belt walk. And you knew the cadence. When the fit, feet hit the floor, you were like, This is it. <laughs> it's time to get right with God. And you did. You did. I mean, you were having a Jesus moment long before you knew the belt was coming because you were like, oh, hey, no, no. Believe me, I'm a changed person. (laughs) Attitude adjusted. Mission accomplished. (laughs) And I reflect on our culture and our world, and I reflect on the ethos of the church. We need an attitude adjustment. We need to fall back in line with what... We are being taught as the core principles of Scripture. And that's what Paul is writing about. Paul is writing to a church that needs an attitude adjustment. And what's happened to them is that they have been introduced to the gospel of grace. And so they celebrate grace. woohoo! hoo And then some people come in, and they begin to talk about legalism, about Judaism, about what it means to abide by all the rules. And now they're picking sides. They're trying to decide if they want to live in this place of grace instead of this place of legalism. And Paul can't fathom why you would want to. He was brought up in legalism, and he escaped by a revelation from Jesus Christ himself and was given the gift of freedom, and he can't imagine why anybody who was born in grace would seek out legalism. But I understand. Don't you? (laughs) Because that's how we are as humans. We, we want to codify things and break them down and get them into a system. Amen? How else will we know how we're doing? More importantly, how else will we know how other people are doing? So we need a system. When I graduated from seminary and came here to this church, I, I hadn't thought very reflectively about life, I guess. But I remember my first few years here, I, I just was going through... A really difficult time and and so I, I was analyzing what was it that was so difficult well here's what it was I had spent seven years of my life having people evaluate me and tell me how I was doing it was a beautiful system I wrote papers I took tests I knew I mean you know you guys all went through this probably after your freshman year, you have a list of classes you've taken and how many you have left to take. You're just checking them off. You just you're, you just can't wait till you're done. Remember? And you knew just how many hours I've got, this is how many I lack, this is how many I'm taking this semester. Your life was mapped for you. You knew what you were doing. You had people saying to you, "This was great." And you had other people saying, "This was not so good." But you knew where you stood. You had some people saying things like this, if you do not do some extra credit, (laughs) whoa, to your GPA. You even had a GPA. You had a grade point average. You could look at your life over the last several years and have an average point score for how you were doing. How beautiful is that? Or troubling. But you knew where you stood. And after seven years of higher education, I came to this church to pastor. Guess what? There is no formal evaluation of how you're doing. There's anecdotal evidence like, Pastor, bless your heart. (laughs) You kind of have to figure out what that means, you know. Try to take it in the way it was said instead of the way it was meant. But no real way of evaluating. And so what do we humans do? We don't do well in that. We like to know how we're doing. Hey, man, wouldn't you love for somebody to come up to you right now and say, Listen, you're doing great. I know you're right here, but you're going to get right here. Don't worry about it. You're you're making progress. You're doing good. Hang in there. We love that. We love to have some sense of who we are and where we are and and what's happening to us and where we're going and, and what's next for us. That gets more and more important as you get older, you know, because when you get to a certain age, you're kind of like, well, I don't know that I have 20 or 30 more years in my career. I, I better get something done right now. What's it going to look like when things change? At least my job has provided for me sort of a structure. You know, they give me money and stuff. It's, it's kind of cool the way it works. And then you get to retirement, and you're kind of like, well, now who am I and what am I? We like to have structures of evaluation. And Paul has come to this understanding. Listen, you leave human beings under themselves, and they will build structures of accountability. They will pull people into structure. Most of you right now, I could ask you to stand up and explain to me what happens at your workplace. And most of you would say, you can't believe the bureaucracy. You can't believe the craziness of things we have to do that make absolutely no sense. But we're satisfying somebody. Amen? Is that, is that true? I think it's true. And then we do that in the church. Because we feel better if we have some system of a, it's just human nature. I want to know where I am, I want to know how I'm doing, and I want to know where other people are. Because God forbid that I would go through my whole life not doing things. And that I don't get a better prize at the end than somebody else who was doing things. Did you not understand that? That was really profound. Isn't there an underlying spirit among Christians that says, listen, I have denied myself a whole bunch of stuff and I better get a better deal at the end because I've worked harder and done less than most people I know. Too much? Okay, I'll, I'll tone it down. I think sometimes as Christians we feel like I don't want anybody getting away with stuff because I didn't get away with anything. So I don't want anybody else getting away with stuff. What I grew up believing better be true. Because heaven forbid that someone else has more fun than I did and still gets all of the benefits that I'm going to get or that I'm getting. Because that's human nature, isn't it? You're very quiet today in your feedback. The online crowd is a manning, they're clapping. <laughs> in my head, I can hear them. I can hear them in my head. <laughs> and so we build these structures of accountability. And Paul is now arguing and saying, listen, here's the problem with your structure. And by the way, if you don't think this is human nature, you know you know who used to be great at this legalism, the church. You know who's not really as good at it anymore? The church. You know who's better at it? The culture. The culture has created an unspoken system of accountability that has its own prophets and evangelists. It is recruiting people and judging people. And you thought the church was was bad about this stuff. Listen, the culture now, it'll go back three or four decades and cancel you. Because of something you did in college when you might not have been in your right mind. Amen? At least around the church, we only condemn you for what you did this week. (laughs) Because it's human nature. And around the church, when we talk about love and we talk about grace... We don't talk about love the way everybody else talks about it. We're not talking about some sentimental, warm, fuzzy feeling that we have for one another. We're talking about it being ambassadors of reconciliation in the name of the God who actually does convict people and transform their lives. We're not in charge of righteousness. God is. The love of God does not throw out the need to be righteous. It's just that we're not in charge of it. It's just that we're not in charge of it. I don't know if you're just like taking it on the chin or if you've decided he's gone crazy. (laughs) He's completely heretical. Where did he go? What did he do? And so this is exactly what Paul is arguing. He's saying to the Galatians, listen, why would you choose to go back into some form of legalism when the grace of God has released you and made you free? Wouldn't you want to just tell people, hey, God loves you. When you ask, he forgives you. You become his child. The old is gone, the new has come. You're a new creation. Woohoo! <laughs> oh, and here are the rules. And here's the crazy thing about that because I know this is an uncomfortable topic because some of us are like, I don't know where he's going. You and I, we all know we could get in a car and go down the street and we could find a church that would give us a list of the rules. I mean, they would make no, they'd be, here it is. And then we could get in the car and go to another church, and they would give us, here it is. And guess what? They're not the same. And then we go, I don't know why our kids don't want to go to church. Well, they're very confused. <laughs> kind of like we are. What is the rule book? What is the guideline? The guideline is personal relationship with Jesus Christ in which we've confessed our sins and received forgiveness and are guided by the Holy Spirit in convicting ways over things in our own personal life that the Holy Spirit has the power to not only speak to us about in ways none of us could speak to each other, but also to transform us and change us and actually see us come into the possibility of being formed in the image of Christ. That's who we are. We don't just love like, oh, I just love you. I just love you. That's not us. I love you in the truth and the power of the saving grace of Jesus Christ, who died on a cross for your sins, to release the power of the Holy Spirit into our lives, who will teach us and bring us into all things. And so we relax. (laughs) Well, don't you need to go confront that person? Guess what? I'm going to pray. That the Holy Spirit leads them in a way that is the absolute blessed way for their life to go. That's what I'm praying. (laughs) Because the Holy Spirit has a way of doing that that actually draws them into the love and grace of God instead of driving them away from the love of grace and God. If you were growing up Roman, there would be a few things that would happen to you. A Roman child came of age somewhere between 14 and 17. Depend on the child. It turns out in Roman times, some children were ready to be adults at age 14. I'm just giving you the history. Here's what's crazy all children were ready to become adults by age 17. And so, there was a formal ceremony. When the parents determined that the child was ready to leave childhood and move into adulthood, then there was a ceremony. And that ceremony took place in homes with families, but once the ceremony was completed, and part of that ceremony is they took off the robe of the initiate, which had a purple trim at the bottom, and they put on the robe of adulthood, which was all white. So, when you see a a a Roman toga that... Did I say yoga? I said toga? Okay. Well, I I can't tell from the feedback what's happening, but I figured if I made a mistake, you'd call that out. So. So they put on the white toga, the toga of adulthood. And once they had done that ceremony, then they went to the public forum and they announced to everybody, this child is ready to be an adult. And one of the ceremonies that went with that the children, in order to symbolize their leaving of childhood and moving into adulthood, as they brought toys with them. And then they went to the temple of Apollo, and they presented their childish things to Apollo to symbolize leaving their childhood and moving into adulthood. Kind of cool. The other thing that was true of, of Roman culture was this. It didn't matter what family you belonged to until you came of age, you really didn't have anything in fact the way it worked was even if your father had left you an enormous inheritance and had died and so you were already ready for the inheritance somebody was put in charge of you and so trustees would keep whatever the 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 inheritance was until you reached the age that your father had determined that you would receive it and so the common knowledge was it doesn't matter what a big deal you are right now you're not much more than a slave You have zero rights. You may be getting a big thing coming, but right now you got nothing. And so that was a part of the culture. If you were a child, you didn't get to inherit and you had really no rights. And so whatever your future might look like, your present didn't have a lot of freedom. I share all that with you because it will help make sense of Galatians 4. Now listen to what Paul is arguing and what he's writing about as he articulates In this passage, Galatians 4, verse 1. What I'm saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he's no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So, also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. This powerful Greek here, powerful language in which he's speaking about. What it means to live in an elementary state of mind. What it means to be controlled by immature processes. That's, that's kind of the heart of the Greek. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might, might receive adoption to sonship. Because you're his sons. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls Abba Father, So you're no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you're his child, God has made you also an heir. Formerly, when you didn't know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. That's a great line, isn't it? (laughs) Formerly, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. Aren't we slaves to a lot of things in our culture and our world that have nothing to do with the divine? I don't know what you get upset about or depressed about, but very often it is not divine stuff. Amen. Amen. Formerly, when you did not God, you were slaves by nature to those who are not God's. But now you know God, or rather are known by God. How is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You're observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I've wasted my efforts on you. I plead with you, brothers and sisters. Become like me, for I became like you. You did me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you, and even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn, and still you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing of me now? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good." What they want is to alienate you from us so that that you may have zeal for them. It's fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be always so, not just when I'm with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone, because frankly, it doesn't say that, I am perplexed. Because I am perplexed. Paul can't comprehend why the church at Galatia would go back to legalism. He can't comprehend why they would leave, having been born in an understanding. Paul was born into an understanding of legalism. And when Christ appeared, he set him free from that and gave him the gift of grace. He had lived his whole life and he was good at it. He not only lived under the tyranny of the law his whole life, He so believed that everybody ought to live under the tyranny of law that he persecuted and put to death those who refused to. Pretty zealous. Pretty zealous. But then God, through Jesus Christ, spoke from heaven, opened heaven and said, Paul, why do you persecute me? And Paul said, I don't know who you are. That's that's a big deal right there. I've been doing all these things in your name, but I don't even know who you are. I am Jesus Christ, whom you persecute. Well, I never looked at it like that. I thought I was fighting for you, not against you. And Paul, being released from the legalism, celebrates the grace. So he looks at the Galatians and he said, but you were born in grace. You never heard any other gospel. The gospel of grace came to you. I gave it to you. And now you're drifting back in. You don't want to go there. Trust me, I live there. All that I once held dear, I now consider as garbage compared to the surpassing greatness of having a relationship with Jesus Christ. That leads me into behaviors that are keeping the fruits of righteousness, but it's grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. And we know the difference. Listen, we have lived, most of us in this room have lived in this culture in a time when it was gracious and it was more fun to be alive than it is now. Because the legalism under which we operate as a culture today is oppressive and depressing. And it produces anxiety and suspicion and anger. And I just want to say this out loud. It was no difference when the church was driving the judgmental behaviors. It was also oppressive. We were just in it. We were just in it. You know in your home, in your family, there is a difference between the ethos of grace and the ethos of judgment. Here's what's funny. Sometimes when we get our family together, it's not the Christians who are so judgmental. But when that judgmental attitude walks in the door, you feel the weight of it. Don't you? Because it's a hard way to live. It's a hard way. The ethos of judgment is suspicion, criticism. It's tearing down and not building up. People are guarded, tense, anxious. The ethos of grace is warm and inviting and safe. It's kind and it's thoughtful. It's deferential. It's not self seeking. It's never rude. It's kind. And it's building an ethos. Paul cites six things that I think matter in this little passage. Don't groan, they're short. He says, number one, immaturity is slavery. When I was a child, I thought as a child, and I reasoned as a child, and I talked as a child. And when I became a grown-up, I put aside child. That's what he's talking about. That's how it fits. Love is patient. Love is kind. He does not envy. When I was a child, I did other things. But I grew up, and I left behind those elementary understandings of judgment and legalism. I grew up. He says right in the middle of the passage, I set aside the elemental things. That's the Galatians passage. He means two things. Number one, he means the legalism in which he had grown up, Judaism. We don't live in the element. That's immature. That is an immature way to live. The mature way to live is personal relationship with Jesus Christ that is guiding my every moment and every move. I don't need to go over to the church and find out what the pastor is saying. The pastor hopefully is opening the word with background and education that I don't have so I can understand better what God is saying to me because I have a better understanding of his word. Amen? Amen. So when the preacher starts talking about stuff that don't make sense, then we call him on it. But not today. <laughs> the second thing he has in mind is this, astrology. Astrology. This word, elemental forces, I won't go into all the Greek here. It has reference to two things. It has reference to elementary teaching that we offer to children, like teaching a child the ABCs. We're we're not going back to that. The second thing it means is the elemental forces of the universe. In the Roman culture, your future was determined by when you were born. Under which star you were born. So Paul is writing to some people who are trusting the stars to tell them some stuff. I'm so glad we've outgrown this. <laughs> so he's saying, if you were born under the right star, you might feel good about this process. But if you were born under the wrong star, you don't feel good about it. So you're, you've been enslaved by an immature understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ that has stolen the joy out of you. It's stolen your ability to be winsome. It's stolen your ability to connect with other human beings. It's stolen your ability to be warm and gracious and loving and kind. But some of you are also living in the immaturity of thinking that somehow you were born under a star and now you can never succeed in life. Or you have a free pass to success and you're not making much effort. Listen, we're putting aside immaturity is slavery. You can become enslaved to what the stars are telling you. Amen? Amen? And you can become enslaved to what legalism is telling you. Number two, he says, grace is freedom. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, and we were adopted as his child. From the moment that Christ was born to the moment he was crucified, to the moment he was resurrected, something radically changed in you and in me. That simply by confessing and asking, God forgives us and cleanses us and claims us as His children. Not by anything we have done or not done, but by the fact that we simply throw ourselves on the grace of a loving God. And the vision of Scripture is that let God pour out His grace on you to the point that you then can go pour out your grace on others. Receive. Drink it up. Welcome it in. And let it out. And let it out. And let it out. And let it out. I don't know about you. Isn't that hard? Isn't that hard? We, we are not very patient with one another, are we? I've been around a lot of humanity in the last couple of weeks. And I was thinking yesterday as I was flying back home. I just want to be alone. I want no human being in my field of view. I want no human being to speak. I don't want them to talk. I don't want to watch them eat. I do not want human beings anywhere near me. Does anybody else get like that? And then I think, I, I got a pretty low tolerance. I try to imagine, what if I was on a wagon train and I had to live with people for months at a time? I would have been the one that went crazy and killed somebody (laughs) I wouldn't have made it because our tolerance sort of has waned over the years hasn't it Paul is saying listen it's grace God loves you and he loves you and he loves you and he loves you and in order to access this grace you have to ask it's a super high standard If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. I just have to add, anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone. We're not going back and checking your record. We're not looking for something to cancel you over. Because this is real grace. Real grace. That transforms human beings. Number three, why regress, he says. (laughs) Verses 8-11, through formerly when you didn't know God, you were slaves to those who were by nature not gods. Why would you want to go back to that? And yet we do, don't we? We do. Even today, some of us, you know, our insides are churning and upset by what's going on in our culture. People who are not gods, who are telling us stuff, and we're mad about it. Amen? And how seldom do we sit in space and just say, you know what? I don't have to live like that informing me of who I am, is the God of the universe who has claimed me as his child and made me an heir. (laughs) I may not be able to claim it now, but at some point, at some point, I will come into this inheritance that God has brought to me. Number four, he says, it's not about, it's about, I'll read it now. In fact, I'll just look up there. It's not about who, (laughs) it's about what? Paul says, some of you are doing this. Because Paul said it, I believe it. And others of you are saying, because the Judaizers from Jerusalem said it, I believe it. You have decided it's about who's saying it and not about what they're saying. I'm so glad that's not true of our culture. Well, I watch this news station, and when they say it, it's true. Uh, That all depends on what they're saying. Amen? Well, I follow this preacher online, and it's it's about, you know, who's saying it. Is it? Isn't it about what's being said? Paul's already made the point, if anybody's preaching a gospel to you other than grace, it is not the gospel. Even if an angel from God preaches another gospel, it's not the gospel. There's just one gospel. It's a gospel of grace. Isn't that who we're supposed to be? It doesn't matter who says it. And we ought to leave those immature ways of thinking behind us. Because I don't know about you, but it seems to me that we all do this. We all follow after different trains of thought and different lines of thinking. And most of us are not going to be changed by arguments, particularly on social media. But we're not giving up. (laughs) I'm pretty sure this post, it's going to break through. And the reason we're not seeing much transition in people's lives is because people are listening less to what is being said and more to who is saying it. Well, if that news channel reported it, it can't be true. Well, if it came from that political party, it can't be true. Paul says, listen, it is not about who is saying it. It is about what is being said. And what I am saying to you is this is the powerful gospel of Jesus Christ. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. Go love others. Love them, love them, love them, always love them. Let the power of this love, not a sentimental thing, the depth of truth in the universe, love like that so that the power of the Holy Spirit is released into the lives of others who will actually have the power to convict and change and transform love. By this, in fact, will all people know that you are my disciples by your love one for another. I had somebody in a Bible study one time say to me, well, that just means you love other Christians, and you don't have to love anybody else. (laughs) And who is my neighbor? A man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho fell among thieves, and a priest passed by, and a rabbi passed by, and a Samaritan passed by, and the Samaritan stopped And bound up his wounds. Who was a neighbor to the man who fell among thieves? The one who showed him mercy. You go and do likewise. Love, love. Not weak-willed love. Deep, godly love. That releases the power of the Holy Spirit into the lives and the communities and the culture in which we live. Number five, have an appropriate passion. He says, you guys are getting all zealous about all kinds of things. Sad thing is, none of them are going to work out. Isn't that our culture? How many people do you know that are incredibly zealous for a whole bunch of stuff? By the way, in this little story, just this is a side note, and it's free, and I'm almost finished, so I know it's 11.01, and you're vibrating. (laughs) I got to go. Does he know? Oh, no. You can thank the staff. The clock on the back wall gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. It used to be a small clock. Now look back there; it's huge. Soon there'll be an alarm that goes off. It's coming like flags are going to pop out. Da 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 da. But I digress. People in our culture are zealous, like unbelievable disciples of movements. Amen? And Paul says, it's good to be zealous, but you ought to be zealous about something that actually has the hope of making a difference. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ and the grace that goes with it. Which is the sixth point. Have a passion for grace. Have a passion for grace. Do we? Listen, this is hard. I mean, it's, it's easier now because, you know... But you're going to walk out that door, and you're going to run immediately into people who need grace. And I have found out this. You know, you don't want to preach a series on patience, and you do not want to preach a series on attitude. Because God will put you through it. He will check your attitude every day. He'll give you plenty of opportunities to have a bad attitude. And I think you're going to now have the gift of having plenty of opportunities to have a bad attitude. Amen? To your kids, to your spouse, to your neighbors. To the people at Starbucks, especially the people at Starbucks, (laughs) be zealous for grace. Be zealous for grace. It's contagious. It creates an ethos unlike anything else the earth understands our nose. Philip Yancey says, I left the church because of a lack of grace. I came back because I could find it nowhere else. This is our hope. It's the hope of our culture. It's the hope of our world. And we ought to be zealous for that reality. We're going to share communion. It's a, such a powerful symbol. I invite the band to come back. It's simply we receive the grace of God. We take it in and we let it do the work inside of us, whatever it might be. The feast is for his disciples. If you've never prayed a prayer of repentance and confession, we're going to pray one together as a, converse, as a congregation. And we invite you to pray along with us. You received the elements when you came in. If you want to start navigating that, you can start navigating that. Just don't spill it on you because we don't pay cleaning bills. <laughs> I love this reality. These are symbols of this broken body and shed blood. They are avenues through which grace reaches into the heart and life of a human being. Perhaps this morning you're saying, I need some. I need God to portion grace into my story, into my life, into my need. He knows what it is. He knows what's inside you. He knows what's going on in your heart and your mind and your home and your family and your extended family and friends, jobs, money. He knows. Sometimes I think we are always focused on how we help someone else. This is a moment when you get to just Center down, as the Quakers say, and receive the grace and the love of Jesus Christ. God, we give you thanks that you love us like this, that you love us so much that you not only teach us about the unselfish, unmerited favor of God that always gives us back far more than we deserve. But you also love us in such a way that you are willing to step into our story and our life. And while every time we pray, we don't get exactly what we want. You do promise to go with us through whatever we might face. You do call us to remember the deeper truths. That nothing in this life can ever separate us from the love of God. Not life, not death, not things present, not things to come. We're no longer slaves to fear. That's a gift of your grace. And so we prepare our hearts for this table. We confess to you our sins. We're so thankful that the simple truth of your grace is that when we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us, make us new, clean again from all unrighteousness. So we dedicate these elements to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I pray through them you would apportion grace to each person as there is need. The body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was broken for you, preserve you blameless unto everlasting life. Take and eat in remembrance that Christ died for you. The blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was shed for you, preserve you blameless unto everlasting life. Take and drink in remembrance that Christ died for you. And be thankful. God, we give you thanks. And we ask you now that you would hear our response to your word. That even as we sing these words, you would do your work in each of us. And you would go with us from this place. We pray it in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And everybody said together, amen. Amen. Will you stand as we sing? Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.